Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I wore Jedi robes for Halloween. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I wore fairy wings for Halloween. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Hefeweizen of the Polliner Brewery. It's definitely not our typical color. Yeah, so I'm, I'm feeling a little under the weather, and so I'm actually really excited to be drinking a wheat beer, um, just because it's a little lighter than so many of the things that we drink, and this is a good month for me to be taking it easy. Uh, we, we got, this is, a, this is a direct recommendation by our beer vizier, Aaron Matthew, in response to some comments we flippantly and ignorantly made a couple months ago when we had a different wheat beer, and we will revisit those discussions later today. What are we doing today, Zafron? Students need feedback on their work in order to improve, but what is the impact of different approaches to giving that feedback? We read a study of how students perceive the feedback they get and how it impacts their motivation and vitality. We see the applications for helping students boost their sense of competency. Later, we read a teacher-written journal paper on applications of cognitive load theory. We find implications for helping students manage their cognitive resources, especially when applying IEPs and 504 plans. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read Students' Perceptions of Teachers' Corrective Feedback, Basic Psychological Needs, and Subjective Vitality, a Multi-Level Approach. Written by Arjanis Vergara Torres, Jose Tristan, Jeanette Lopez-Wall, Alejandra Gonzalez-Gallegos, Athanasios Papas, and Inez Tomas. This was published in Frontiers in Psychology in 2020. Uh, I was excited to see this one uh, and really enjoyed reading it. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's a, it, it, hit, it checks several big boxes for things that I like. They, they use um, self-determination theory, which is no secret to, to regular listeners that I'm a big fan. Um, and looks at feedback, which is something you and I talk about a lot. And I've even had a number of like important professional conversations. So how we approach feedback really matters for the way students receive that feedback, the way it impacts them emotionally, and of course, how it uh, can influence their development. So all those things were all um, like big, um, big yeses. They were like big, big flags. Like, I want to read this paper. Uh, and so I'm glad you enjoyed it. I think we can get over like what they did pretty easily. They had uh, over 740. 40 10 to 13 year old sixth graders in uh, the Monterey, Mexico metropolitan area uh, in PE. And uh, they, they asked them a bunch of questions about the feedback and how they felt about themselves and their class. Um, you know, the nuts and bolts, a lot of the paper was about stuff that I don't think is going to be particularly relevant to, to classroom listeners. They really focused a lot on uh, their survey methodology, the construction of their scales, their their model validation. And while I think that's all interesting, it's not really going to influence um, the, you know, the findings. If you just take us at our word um, that they did the statistics, it really boils down to um, the connections between the way students are perceiving feedback, the way they perceive uh, their own motivation, and the way they perceive, um, uh, you know, their own vitality, uh, which was uh, kind of a like a final outcome, final downstream outcome that they used in the study. I guess it struck me because it's 
I, it's the first time I've encountered it, right? We've we've been uh, so in five seasons. That's the first time I think I've encountered a metric like that. That is just so. Um, they did refer to it as subjective vitality, right? Because it's sort of like ill-defined in terms of uh, of uh, like well, maybe not ill-defined, but individually defined by the person taking the survey. It was kind of a refreshing out of left field question that I didn't anticipate. Their big study question was looking at the influence of uh, feedback on student uh, student constructs related to self-determination and ultimately this downstream vitality. So I think that we probably need to start by unpacking um, feedback. Like, why do we think about feedback? What is the role of feedback in teaching? Uh, what is the role of feedback in teaching? That's really big. As it is, and uh, let me let me uh, maybe I can narrow it a little bit for your the sake of your reactions, um, because in my head, especially in the way they were laying out their their first first introductory sentences, um, you know, feedback is commenting on student student work, student student expression, student whatever, uh, and it's easy to imagine that as either positive or negative. Look at you're doing that thing, that's great, or look at you're doing that thing. That, that's not great. Um, but this corrective feedback idea is trying to understand how do you, how do you approach what is the impact of providing feedback to students that is pointing out things that are not the way they want them to be in a way that doesn't come across or have an impact as negative. Um, so like, how do I provide correction? And especially in their physical education context, you know, you're, you know, that the swing of the bat you did your best and I'm glad you're doing that. You really like, you need to, you need to, um, you know, choke up on the bat. And like, that's, that's not to say that your swing was bad and you should feel bad about it. It's that you will have a better swing next time if you make this change. And so thinking about the delivery of the feedback that's pointing out things that are not the way the student or the teacher wants them to be, but presenting them in a way that does not the same thing as like just negative criticism or just like a threatening comment. Uh, yeah, okay, so this does help me a little bit, because, you know, the, the term feedback is broad, and, and, like, an X on a paper is feedback, but it's not feedback that necessarily the student can use to do anything, right? It's just, I have been judged, you know, okay, moving on, as opposed to uh, uh, feedback with some utility that can help guide and change future behaviors and uh, il illustrate a potential opportunity for growth or development toward mastery, which I uh, contributes to one of the perceptions that was uh, uh, questioned about feedback is, hey, students, do you, f do you feel the feedback you're getting is legitimate? And in that case, you know, it's fair that it was given and it is useful to you to receive it. Uh, so that was something that they, they asked. Yeah, they uh, so building from their scales, they really pulled out two of those ideas that you already commented on, where the, the first one is like kind of the beginning of their questions was, students, do does your teacher give you feedback that points out things you need to fix? Like, do they comment on it? Do you hear that from them um, at all? And then a second um, piece of those questions was also that legitimacy idea of when they give you comments about things to fix, are they legitimate comments? Like is uh, what was the example that they used was I thought was particularly interesting. Uh, if my teacher points out my mistakes, I find that they have a fair reason to do so. The paper took, uh, uh, took the lens of exploring whether or not the feedback that was given was meeting student needs and the specific needs that they were attempting to investigate were those of student autonomy, student 
competency and student related uh, relatedness. Okay, because I don't know how to do it any else, I'm just going to go straight to, to what they found. That uh, in the PE classes, the feedback didn't really contribute to a sense of autonomy for the kids, and that's possibly because, you know, they're in school and it's a class and they got to play the games that the that the, t- the PE teachers say they got to play and they got to do the exercises they got to they got to do and the feedback doesn't really change what students' choices are in the classroom, um, but it did um, affect their sense of competency in whatever that endeavor was, and that c- increasing their sense of incompetency did have a positive influence on their sense of vitality in the classroom. In other words, getting legitimate feedback. M- brought like helped the students develop get better and acknowledge that they're getting better in whatever this was which made them feel better about being humans in this classroom and i think that is big agreed like the autonomy stuff was kind of nothing but just to underscore the like the the pathway loadings like the amounts of impact the amounts of association um the connection from students feeling competence and students reporting subjective vitality is enormous it's a huge effect size i mean it's a pretty and it's all the way through if they perceive the feedback to be legitimate um, then it's a pretty big association that they're likely to report a greater sense of competence. And if they report a greater sense of competence, I just, I got to, it's so big. It's so big, the connection to subjective vitality. And I think that's actually why I felt really good about this paper. And I don't have any significant relationship to PE instruction, but I have kids in my college biology class where we're studying molecular biology who are not going to be chemists they're not going to be biologists uh the vast majority of them are in fact not going to be scientists of any type uh but they come into my classroom and they get and i extensively provide feedback on their work on a regular basis like daily basis at a formative level and even when they're doing summative work i provide extensive notes and respond to their work um and giving them the opportunity to improve and they can see their improvement and that is like the biggest hook that i have it's not that hey kids you're going to use this work when you grow up because most of them aren't and it's not um although i do work on related you know i do work on making them feel safe and included and trying to build relationships in my classroom. It's not because we are scientists doing this together because we identify as scientists. That's not the group that we're having here. The, what we identify, what I leverage is that we are learners and look at how much we know about molecular biology now compared to how much we knew then. And when they get a bite of that, it doesn't matter that they don't identify as scientists because they do identify as learners and they report feeling good about that process because they can see that their competency has grown. And that is enough for them to feel great about being in the class. Yeah. So, and so what's interesting, I'm glad you're, you're mentioning the relatedness is the relatedness also had uh, significant connections. Um, if you, if they perceive that feedback to be legitimate, they're, they're providing me a correction that makes sense. It's appropriate. Um, I've got a pretty substantial, a pretty large um, association with higher feelings of relatedness um, it, with, with the teacher, with my peers, how, it, you know, however that scale operationalized it. And yet a almost equivalently significant, like substantial 
negative association with reporting subjective vitality. And I struggle to explain that. I really struggle to explain that um, because look at the individual at the individual level analysis that they also provide individual students who report higher levels of relatedness have a weak but significant association of reporting higher levels of vitality. So it's not that it suppresses it at the individual level, like individuals who are unrelated are more vital. That's not what they found. But at the group level, groups who report having higher um, perceptions of legitimacy are much more likely to report having a higher level of relatedness and thus a much lower level of subjective vitality. And that's, that's bananas to me. That's uh, I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of that. And it brings us back to the question of this vitality metric. Like it's an interesting metric. It's compelling. It's got some narrative heft. It's got some curiosity. It's intrinsically human. Uh, is it a goal, right? Like, is it, should we be trying to maximize our students' vitality? When should we be maximizing vitality? Should should we – is when is it not a goal? Is it a distraction? Is it uh, like I, – I mean we want people to feel good. Uh, it, it, it's kind of ill-defined and nebulous. So when do I want them to feel good? Like in, in – is it productive? Is it like if I can get them to feel vitality, do I just stop doing other things? Do I leverage vitality for other achievements? It's kind of like, okay, so they relatedness and vitality are sometimes supporting each other and sometimes not. Um, and uh, but but do I know enough about vitality to actually use that information in any meaningful way? I don't know. Yeah, and the, and all of this sits next to there are so many reasons to offer feedback that vita- vitality doesn't need to be in the top ten. Like it's like I offer feedback for all sorts of other reasons um, that I think lead to positive positive benefits. And so whether or not it impacts vitality doesn't really shape whether and how I'm going to give feedback. Um, and so I I'm going to draw out because they they point out in their in their closing paragraphs. Um, that the like one of the big takeaways from their study was that uh, and consistent with past work is that um, even if the feedback is focusing on student errors and corrections to those errors, um, when you communicate that feedback and they say an assertive manner in my head, I sort of I sort of operationalize that as like a productive manner, a constructive manner, an actionable manner, you know, corrective. If we can make corrections and we have opportunities to to act on that feedback and to get better and to see that we're getting better. If we if we offer the feedback in those ways, feedback can favor perceived competence. And that is cool. That has academic consequences. That is a goal of mine. It is absolutely a goal in my classrooms that my students, uh, that the students learning with me feel their increasing competence and that that increasing competence is real. And so uh, that that just that tremendous impact size in the middle of their model is enough. Like in this study, that's enough of a finding to be a takeaway is when you're offering feedback, it can be tempting sometimes to want to focus all of our feedback to be positive because it feels good to give people positive affirmation. But these findings show that there are some concrete positive benefits to giving actionable constructive corrective feedback and so don't shy away from offering corrections 
and helping students see them as legitimate because you reap tremendous gains in, uh, among other things, competency, a huge gain in students' sense of competency, which does contribute to their feelings of motivation, which does contribute to their, you know, they're living a life as a lifelong learner. And I think that's a goal that many educators share. Yeah, they do kind of give some direct should in that when providing corrective feedback, uh, there, it needs to be empathetic. It needs to be accurate. It needs to be option oriented, uh, providing students opportunities to improve their participation and decision making in the future. Uh, so apply those standards to your feedback ask yourself is this feedback if i'm am i giving this feedback in an empathetic way is this feedback accurate does this feedback include options for future student behavior for them uh and if if you if you're answering no then change your behaviors yeah i particularly like that last one uh you know having having options to act on it and in the future right so it's not just oh i wish that had been different backwards facing oh that i will make that different future facing yeah you liked this paper didn't did you further reinforcing i have no idea i i cannot predict what papers lawrence will enjoy and what papers he will not enjoy well i felt good reading it because it um because of that translational narrative like why do kids who don't who who don't have science goals enjoy my really nitty gritty science class. Why, why do they do that? And it's because they are feeling a sense of competency in learning this material. And like, I've, I continue to change my practice and tweak it over time. Right. So that um, I collect their retrieval every day. And then the subsequent day this year, I'm handing yesterday's retrieval to them for them to find places today that were better than yesterday's. So like I have made tracking our progress through the material, an explicit part of my daily instruction. So they can see the competency develop like exactly. Oh, well today I knew these things and yesterday I did not know those things oh today i knew these things and last thursday i did not know those things uh and so and they feel good about it and it's like well it's a small change but it's so like it's so directly empowering uh and they feel satisfaction by logging those improvements of themselves uh that that contributes to a vitality uh, that I, so that word, you know, like I still don't know what it means, but I can kind of see it in my classroom for the kids that are, you know, really participating in, 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 in these opportunities that I'm trying to encourage. And that made me feel good. So that's why it felt good. Empower each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, actually, what's interesting now that I think about it, right? Even if feedback's always been important, I, I think in my in my earliest years of teaching, I would give feedback, and in fact, some of my early mistakes were giving too much feedback that overwhelmed the student with 
to they don't know how to respond to so much like it wasn't scaffolded which kind of bridges to our next paper yeah so for our second segment we read cognitive load theory an applied reintroduction for special and general educators written by michael kennedy this was published in Teaching Exceptional Children. Uh, we read it in 2021 with an online first advanced copy. Uh, I liked this one too. I liked reading this. Yeah, this was fun because you and I, we've talked about cognitive load periodically. We probably mentioned it on this show even in the past, uh, although I don't think we've ever read an explicit paper focused on it. But um, Michael is a classroom teacher and wrote a practitioner-focused piece on how what what relevance does this this theory have uh for classroom teachers and i was like hey we want to share things with classroom teachers let's read that paper yeah i highly recommend this read to any anybody who has the patience to listen to this show definitely can read this paper it is it is a pleasure to read it is it is not like it's not going to have like 70 percent of it is not dense statistical analysis practice it's just some comments about our brains and how they work and what what that means for students in our classrooms it's really nice it's highly recommended i almost i i mean i know this is an advanced copy but i kind of i mean i want to make and i know you link to all of our resources but like this is just so directly relevant and accessible and easy to read that it will spark your mind about decisions and conditions in your classroom in a healthy, productive, constructive way. I just really think that this is a really, really good paper for all of you to read. It, it was a nice synthesis. That's what it is. Like, like, there's a lot in this paper that are parts that I knew and having them put together in this way, in this narrative is very, has high utility. There's high utility in this narrative. That's really what I want to say. Especially. Uh, so a good focus of this paper that was useful for my own learning, you know, I, I know something about cognitive load theory, but uh, this was published in a setting with a focus on applicable applicability for students with disabilities. And that's something where his application in those contexts was a good spot for me to be explicit about thinking about how that matters to make my classroom more accessible and more productive for more students um, across the breadth of learning needs that, that I may encounter, some of whom have IEPs or 504s or whatever. And so for those pieces were really good for me personally because because um, I needed to spend some time explicitly thinking about how how I can approach the cognitive load of students as they engage in the activities I ask of them. So especially, you know, I think about universal design for learning a lot. And so in that context, if I'm preparing materials that students uh, can navigate with autonomy and agency, and those materials are going to be encountered by students with disabilities um, and students who don't have IEPs and don't have 504s, then I need to be able to be cognizant of the impact on the cognitive load of every student, every student who's going to be using those materials. Yeah, so the paper does a nice little rundown of uh, some, you know, infor light information processing and uh, uses some metaphors and basically draws our attention to the fact that we've got this, this, you know, one of the functions of our mind is to just do do our thinking, right? And when that when that space in the the, the mind gets full. It affects a secondary function. That secondary function is like storing that information that you're thinking about. So you can think about things, 
but which is kind of an, a separate function of storing them and learning about things. So you can solve problems and then not necessarily remember those details later. And so you got two things going on. And when your problem-solving active thinking space is filled, your brain kind of stops with the storing learning section. That they give a good example early on that I really relate to because it's something that happens to me a lot uh, where they talk about, uh, you know, when I'm when I'm being introduced to new people. And so I'm I'm in an unfamiliar social space. Let's say I'm in a big old gathering hall like the And there's a 100 people around me and I know two of them. And, you know, I'm there and I it's important to me that I meet people, that I be sociable. And that's something that I have to put a lot of energy into. And so I'm thinking a lot about, you know, where I hold my hands and where am I standing in the room and who's looking at me and do I owe them nods and smiles and can I do a handshake and do I want to talk to that person? And finally, I see somebody who comes over to introduce themselves. They say, hi, I'm and I'm like, OK, yeah, now now it's my turn to talk. And now I'm going to say this. And then I ask them a question. What question can I ask them? Holy crap, I forgot their name. And that's something that is a direct consequence very often of me being past cognitive load. My, my bandwidth is full thinking about the things. And so there was no bandwidth. I was out of brain resources to do anything with their name when they told me their name. And so it was just immediately dumped to make space for some of the other information that's coming in because there's too much information coming in for me to hold all of it, so to speak. And so it's just in and out, just immediately gone. Like, it's not that like I was on the tip of my tongue. I never heard their name in the first place. And so it's a, it's a, it's a bandwidth issue is how I think about it of, you know, we can hold so much information and work with it productively. And once there's too much, then we shift from working with it productively to just quantity. Just just get it out to make more space because we desperately need new space for new information coming in. And so we're no longer doing productive things with it. We're not dialoguing with our long-term storage. We're just dumping things that aren't immediately pressing needs, um, even though maybe it's something we really would have liked to have remembered. And I appreciate that because I forget people's names all the time. And, and the problem is that sometimes this is very difficult to see in the classroom because an overloaded working memory will still process information. They can still think. They can still make decisions. They can still solve problems. But if, they're working, if their working memory capacity has been reached or surpassed, then storage is not occurring. And this can be uh, devious because it, I mean, you're looking at the classroom and, you know, sometimes kids can disengage when they hit this, but sometimes they're still engaged when they hit this. And it looks like everything is fine, but they're actually, they really are running on all cylinders and that storage process isn't necessarily happening effectively. And so though they can solve the problem, they may not remember these details three days from now or next week when they come up again, even though you were like, oh my gosh, everyone was engaged and everything was do everyone was doing what they were supposed to be doing. If they're past working capacity, there's they're functioning but not learning. And that is tricky. The uh, another piece of this that makes it difficult is that um, the the burden of information on each person's working memory is highly variable. 
Um, there are great differences between the impact of different things on different people, depending on the way they experience their environment, depending on their prior knowledge, depending on their emotional state, um, depending on lots of other idiosyncratic factors that we don't even know right now. And so um, they, you know, they discuss uh, in a section about schemas because uh, prior knowledge is something that we know something about or that we can know something about for, for the students is uh, if it's something that's, you know, if I ask a student to um, multiply, multiply seven times six, that is a trivial task and a very small burden on a mathematics undergraduate student. That is a tremendous task to ask of a first grader. And so the um, their prior knowledge, experience, and skills um, inform all of that. And there's going to be variability across a group of students in sitting in your classroom. And so... Um, it's something that we can know something about. It's a role for formative assessment, not just the beginning of a lesson, but ongoing formative assessment. I see I see this as being a connection to responsive teaching is I can respond when I see individual students exhibiting uh, signs of being at or past working memory capacity. I can respond to that to try to bring, bring them back to a place where they have the capacity, the cognitive capacity to be back in a productive and learning mode rather than saying, well, they're, they're staying busy. And so I need to move on recognizing that that's going to really greatly diminish their learning returns on that experience. So a responsive piece of this can be knowing there's a lot of variability in the, in the burden of even the same person at different moments of time. Uh, and so responding to the signals we get to try to help people stay in an appropriate place on uh, how much of, how much of their uh, cognitive load they're accepting for themselves is a, is a role that a teacher can play. There are actions we can take to reduce cognitive load, but like it's not like we're in a video game and they like little numbers pop up over their head to let us know what percentage of their working memory capacity we're actually operating from, right? We, we these numbers aren't visible. Assessing an individual student's budget is very difficult, so we need to have frequent assessments. And one of the things that they said that I really appreciated is this concept of instruction in waves, right? I I see a beach and I see the water being the instruction, and it washes up all along the beach and you're making progress, but then there's some recession because not all of that gets retained, but then you can the next day push them a little further and then there's some recession and you push further and there's some recession and, and you're assessing, well, how much can I push today and how much recession did we get last time? And I really appreciated that. And what this does is it really, really uh, reinforces this idea that and they said it in their paper too directly and it's something that i'm sure you if you're a, a regular listener you've heard us say this before that like you you can't teach on a schedule you especially can't teach on someone else's schedule right because if you're going to if you're going to understand that like you know uh your kids have a very because their lives are dynamic then their working memory capacity is dynamic not just on an individual basis but a day-to-day -day basis and that the the instructional wave that you have today you don't really necessarily know how much of that is going to stick the next time you revisit these issues so you're going to have to do another soft assessment and figure out what needs to be retaught and and if anyone's saying you gave it this day, that was their opportunity and responsibility to get it that day, and you're going to do something else tomorrow, and you're not going to revisit them, then you're not really teaching your kids things. Uh, and so I really appreciated that he, you know, directly brought that to the discussion that I don't have to sit here and, and pick up my torch and say, this is how it should be. Uh, he, he's saying, look, look, this is, 
this is an issue, you got to respond to your kids. So I really appreciated that section. All things come back to a rejection of scripted curricula. All roads. The uh, and, well, and another piece to remember is you know e- even we have a we have a schedule. I, I hope to do this thing tomorrow. We'll see. Um, but when we walk in, you know this this group, you know I'm used to the wave going up this far on the beach, but we're also teaching and learning in a pandemic right now. We're also teaching and learning with so many other things happening, and so uh, there are different there are different sources of burdens on our cognitive capacities, and I think that the distinctions are relevant. Um, because some of them we have control over and some of them we don't. Uh, you know, there's a difference between the amount of burden that the instructional experience asks of students. You know, that this material is, you know, this complicated, and that's going to require this amount of cognitive energy from any one learner. And and nobody knows what that what that amount is. You know, I don't. The learner doesn't. But like it, that, you know, an omniscient being would know that. Um, but then that also comes with all of the other things that are drawing their attention and their energy and their cognitive sources. And so uh, I could walk into school tomorrow and I usually could handle pretty big, pretty big burdens on my cognitive load. Uh, But last night I heard my grandma cough and I'm thinking about that all day. I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means for me. I don't like, I don't know. I, I don't know. And that's using up that's using up space. That's, 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 you know, the, there's the, there's the quip on, there's the quip of, you know, it's, it's, it's got, it's living rent free in my head. And that's real. Like that fits our analogy. It's actually taking up real space in our brain. And so this distinction between what the, what the, the theory calls intrinsic and extraneous load and, the extraneous load is real. And some of those things we don't have any control over, even though they have real material impacts on the amount of uh, cognitive resources a student can devote towards your academic goals. Uh, but some of them we do have control over, and that's actually pretty encouraging. So if you're like, we want to do this really complicated task, I really want them to invest a lot of energy into thinking about this problem. And it's it's worth it. It's worth putting in that energy. Then I can also recognize that if I'm going to ask them to undertake something with a large intrinsic load i could also i can streamline everything else i'm not going to give announcements about assignments that are due later this week i'm not going to give any reminders about homecoming that's happening three weeks from now i'm not going to make an off-topic joke about about you know a a meme going around school i'm not going to ask them to figure out how to find our equipment i'm going to pre i'm going to preload all the equipment because i recognize i'm going to ask a lot of them to solve this problem and to keep them in a place where they, they are not overburdened on their cognitive resources. I'm going to minimize the extraneous load from my instructional goal that day by removing everything else by saying, you know what? Uh, phones have to be put away today. Like maybe I usually am pretty loose about that today. I need everything you got. You got to put them away today. Um, you know, whatever it's going to be, um, all of it draws from the same well of resource. And so if I'm going to ask a lot of them, I've got to be able to, I got to make up for that. I got, I got to find places to get that, get those resources. And the, the, uh, the control over. So one of the external extraneous load uh, issues that they talked about was extra stimuli in, in the learning experience. And it was, it was pretty black and white uh, in terms of external, extra stimuli and splitting the student's attention so much that the example that they said, which is something I'm guilty of all the time, of course, and now I have to reflect on, on streamlining my practice because I am guilty of this all the time, asking students to read, watch, and listen at the same time, 
read, watch, and listen at the same time. Because those are three different stimuli, three different inputs that are competing for cognitive load space in their working memory where they're considering these ideas. They've got to process a lot of stimuli to decide what's important and what's relevant and how, how do these connect to the things that I already know and what, you know how do I follow the logic here and how do I you know respond to what's happening. That's a lot of, of processing decision. And that's assuming that you don't have additional distractions in the classroom. Those are just the the cognitive load that I have presented them to navigate. Um, so when in fact just reading by itself or just watching by itself or just listening by itself would be more efficient in terms of their processing opportunities. Well, so the, the split attention thing makes me think about two pieces, one one and then the other. Uh, the first was I mentioned early on that uh, I, I am a fan of universal design for learning. And anybody who's familiar with UDL can recognize that multimodal instruction is a huge piece of how um, folks who use that framework think about providing educational experiences. And so you might think to yourself, well, this runs directly contrary to offering any sort of UDL-aligned instruction. If it's saying don't offer a multiple, you know, an option, a set of options options for experiences. And I think that there's a distinction there. I don't think that's what it says. I think that offering an unstructured set of multimodal experiences simultaneously, it puts pretty much all students over budget. And I agree. And I'm not saying I've never been guilty of that. I'm just saying I agree with you that that's what it says. And so uh, I think this goes back to um, intentionality and support scaffolding for using a universal design for learning aligned instructional practices. If I'm going to offer a set of options for how to engage in learning, it's not, it's not a, you know, a, a shotgun approach or just throw it all at them and then whatever sticks sticks. Um, but it's instead saying, here are your options. Let's make choices, make choices with intention and then pursue those choices. So I have three options. I can watch a video. I can read a paper. I can, I can, I can consume an infographic. Which of those do you want to look at right now? I'm going to start by watching the video. Great. Pull the video in front of you. Put the other things away. Get focused on this so that you can free up as much of your cognitive um, space as possible to get what you need to get from that video rather than pulling the infographic over so I can be flipping back and forth between them. Now you're splitting attention. Now you're paying costs um, for extrinsic load that does not actually benefit your instructional practice. And so I think that it comes back to the importance of scaffolded and intentional support structure for helping students navigate offering of choices rather than just showing them all the choices simultaneously, um, which is which is inappropriate for a variety of reasons, one of which is because it puts them over cognitive load. And I think that also speaks to, like this was written specifically um, within the context of thinking about providing educational services for students with disabilities. And I think that's something to remember here is, uh, especially for general teachers uh, who are working with students in their classrooms who have IEPs and 504s. And so you might be thinking about the particular accommodations and modifications that you're being expected expected to implement to be able to make what you do available for for that particular learner who has that particular individualized educational plan and so what you're what it might say is that student needs access to a visual representation of written material and so it can be tempting to say okay well I'm going to be showing this wall o text as a part of my lecture and I will give them a copy done. Like I have met that accommodation. And while that might be true from a box checking standpoint, I've now slipped into this split attention problem of for that student, 
I've now put them at a, at a disadvantage because of this extra burden on their cognitive load that I am asking of them. And that's inappropriate. And so I think it also is relevant from thinking about um, how we serve students with disabilities who have IEPs and 504s, how we provide those services along with the accommodations and modifications that are appropriate. So they get the education to which they are entitled and how we do that in a way that doesn't bring with it lots of extra inappropriate costs in the extraneous load that we may ask of them in, you know, some sort of shortcutted or, or um, unthoughtful delivery of that service. And I appreciated this paper pointing that out because I think that's an important thing to think about. I also can't let it pass that there was a, a nice, uh, succinct uh, sort of mental health component of this for our students as it discussed the cost of anxiety. If we go back to the, um, the budget metaphor, if you've got a $2,000 budget, but you've got uh, anxiety about your performance in the class, belonging in the class, uh, a history of being insufficient, not knowing things, an underdeveloped schema, so it's difficult for you to add new things, and you're worried about all the things, you're just going to, that right there is just going to cut that that budget down. That's like, that's five to 700 gone just because you're anxious about being in that room. Uh, and so that means the cognitive load gets full for that student inhibiting their um, learning capacity much sooner. Uh, and that is a good reminder that those, uh, those kids that are struggling with anxiety uh, smaller chunks, right? The 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 size of the waves need to be smaller so that we can stay under that boundary so that they don't get overwhelmed uh, as as soon. Uh, and and that really applies to kids who are not anxious either, right? If they have a a different like, what we need to do is recognize anxiety as the learning disability that it is, in addition to to the other learning disabilities that we uh, more regularly acknowledge. Um, and so uh, that kind of fits in with this uh, 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 sort of UDL perspective that chunking it down into smaller bits for a variety of reasons is – and having frequent formative assessments is helpful for a lot of things. Well, and the other side of that coin is not just doing less for students who are dealing with other other demands on their cognitive, you know, the resources they have to devote to cognition, but also recognizing that addressing student mental health directly affects the capacity they have to engage in academic behaviors. So it's it's not extra because it all comes out of the same well of resources in the first place. So it's it's a part of your concern if it's affecting the amount of uh, cognitive resources they can devote to your instructional tasks. It's it's all a part of the same picture. Know your students. Uh, so how was the beer? Uh, gosh, um, this... I'm certain I don't have anything intelligent to say about it, which are which uh, Aaron Matthew could have told you ahead of time. Uh, I... It tasted like a wheat. Um, it, you know, comparing it to what I think I might know about wheats, it's, I don't know if it's filtered or not, but it, I didn't notice, I didn't notice as much of some of the like, I don't know. It tasted like a beer. So, uh, I, you know, let's, let's go back in time. Two months ago, we, we drank Troptimistic and American wheat, and neither of us liked it uh, because 
an American wheat has some qualities to it that you and I have a history of not quite liking, being very, very bold in the hoppiness of, of the beer. And that's what we were drinking. Whereas there are other types of wheat beer, and we are now jumping to the far other end. And this is a very, very mild beer. It is delicate, which is, as he uh, dubbed us earlier, he says that we have delicate hop-averse palates. So this is sort of the, like, whereas that one was a bold, strong, hoppy wheat, these are exactly as far sort of on the other side of the spectrum. And we have further wheats in our queue to consider uh, as as we continue this uh, uh Vizier-inspired wheat crash course in beer uh, that our ignorance and our statements have have warranted. So thank you for uh, opening our eyes and providing more to think about as we enjoy these these beverages, Mr. Matthew. Here's this one's to you. Thanks for tuning in to yet another month. This is a lot of fun to talk amongst ourselves and to, of course, include all of you. So feel free to hop on our website, Two Pint PLC, to see any of our supplemental materials, to read any of the papers that we've got, especially the ones we're recommending, or to uh, just engage with us and offer comments about things we're doing well, things we need to do better, uh, whatever it is, because we are a PLC and that PLC is better when we are together. We want to improve, so as we pursue growth... Discuss research and struggle well.